I don't know how many of you like to follow international news, but if you have been following any international headlines recently, you've probably heard something about the Uyghur people of Northwest China. Uh, you have uh, perhaps heard this is a, a large ethnic group in China. They are traditionally Muslim, unlike most of the Chinese. And they have been treated very badly by the Chinese government to the point that many of them, out of supposedly out of fear of, of uh, terrorism and things like that, have actually been sent to uh, relocation camps and things like that. And the international community has, has been protesting these policies for some time. What you might not know is that the Uyghur people are also among the most resistant people in the whole world when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. Uh, it's just a tiny little group of believers among that very large ethnic group. And these Christians are persecuted doubly, basically, because not only are they persecuted by the Chinese government, but they're persecuted by the Muslim majority in their part of China. Very recently, uh, in, uh, this is a, a true story that I read, in, in one Uyghur village, uh, there was a small group of believers and they were meeting uh, at a shop, actually in a local marketplace, when they could. And some of them befriended a man by the name of Ali, who would come into the market from time to time. Uh, Ali was a typical conservative Muslim Uyghur, uh, but he was a very negative and depressed person. Uh, he was very unpleasant to be around. He hated pretty much everybody. He thought the whole world was against him. And he was also very negative for another reason. He had end-stage cancer. And as the, as the folks from the, the little tiny church got to talking to Ali, they told him that Jesus could heal his cancer. And he said, no, he can't. And he made a bet with them. And he allowed the Christians to lay hands on him and pray for him for 30 minutes to see if Jesus would heal the cancer. But he made a bet that, that, that this wouldn't happen. A week later, Ali came back into the shop. And he said he wanted to put his faith in Jesus Christ because his tumor was completely gone. The next time Ali came back, amen, the next time he came back to the fellowship, he brought his doctor, who was so shocked at the healing that he wanted to know what was going on. Ten days later, the doctor gave his life to Jesus Christ. This is in an almost unreached part of the world. Today we are going to, to turn a bit of a corner in our discussion of the kingdom of God, and in coming weeks we'll be seeing God's kingdom not just expressed internally and in the lives of his followers as we've been talking about as we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to be expanding out into the world a bit and see how the kingdom expresses itself in different ways, not just in us, but through us, through Christ's followers. If the kingdom of God is indeed God's rule over God's people in God's place, as we've been saying over and over again, we're going to start to get just a little bit of a hint now of what this place might be. We're not going to flesh it all out today, but we're going to bend a little bit in that direction of what that might mean. So please turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8. Matthew, again, is the gospel that is the most concerned with the, the theme of the kingdom of God, although it is all over the New Testament and really all over the Bible. And we're going to read from this chapter and also a little bit from chapter 9 in a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to just kind of give you an overall impression or summary of what is happening in this part of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew chapter 8 and chapter 9, Jesus goes on a kind of healing and deliverance rampage, kind of a healing binge throughout Israel. In the first thing, well, what, what Matthew does actually is, is, is he is maybe less concerned with the chronological order in which things happen 
than maybe Luke or Mark might be. And Matthew wants to make a point here. And so he jams a whole bunch of accounts of Jesus' healing and deliverance of people into these two chapters. There are many, many other healings and deliverances throughout Matthew, but this is really a concentrated area. And in, in chapter 8 and chapter 9, all of these miracles that Jesus does, except for one, are either to set people free from illness or to set people free from demonic oppression. Starting at the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus heals a leper. Then, just kind of to talk you through it here, then from a distance he heals a paralyzed man. Then he heals Peter's mother-in-law who was at home with a fever. Then that night he heals a whole bunch of people of various illnesses and then he casts out some evil spirits. Soon after that Jesus calms a storm. Then he drives demons out of two big scary men on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Going into chapter 9, Jesus comes back over to, the, to, to his side of the Sea of Galilee and he heals another paralyzed man. Then a little bit later, he heals a woman who has been uh, basically had been suffering from an issue of blood for 12 years. Then he raises a girl from the dead. He follows that up with healing two blind men, and then he drives a demon out of a man who was unable to talk. And by the way, this last miracle really got people's attention because back then, the people that were used to trying to deal with demons, the way they did it was they said, the one thing you absolutely have to do is you have to get the demon to say its name, and then you can cast it out. But guess what? You can't do that with a mute demon because the demon can't say its name. And so the legend had kind of risen up that if anyone ever came and cast a mute demon out of someone, that person had to be the Son of God, the Messiah. And that's why you'll see after Jesus does this, immediately people start getting on his case because the religious leaders are very threatened at that point, and they start saying that he's in league with Satan. But anyway, let's, we're going to go back and look at just a couple of these miracles a little more carefully. But before we do that, I want to take you back to the very end of chapter 7 where Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount because there's, Matthew is trying to do something here. There's a word that he uses that he very obviously wants to use as a transition. So Matthew 7, just the last two verses, verse 28 says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In other words, Jesus wasn't just explaining things. He was commanding things. He was actually saying things that he expected people to do. He expected them to listen and to obey. I want to talk with you today, and we'll talk about this a lot in the coming weeks, but today I just want to concentrate on this, about kingdom authority. Kingdom authority. I want to begin to explore, begin to explore what this authority means in our lives, in the lives of those around us, and in our world. But, but first I want to give you just, a, just sort of a working down-to-earth definition of the word authority, because we need to know what it means. Authority is basically the ability to issue commands and make decisions and then have those things enforced or carried out. Authority is the ability to make commands and then have them carried out. When someone with real authority speaks, it happens. It happens. It must. My favorite example, uh, illustration really of authority is, is something I, I might have shared with you once before. I once heard it from Tony Evans. He says, whenever you watch a football game on TV, like an NFL football game, you see an example of authority. Because you see these huge, hulking, powerful, young, 300-pound men being ordered around, really, by these much smaller, older guys wearing black and white stripes. And you think, how is this possible? If you didn't know what it was and you just turned it on, you'd be like, what is going on here? What's well, because these smaller guys have what? They have the authority. What they say goes. 
It's binding. It's enforced. And so the big guys have to say, have they have to do what they tell them to do. And their decision is final. Their instructions are carried out. That's authority. That's authority. But I want you to note something. This is very important. To be real, authority has to be backed up by power. By power. If one of those big football players all of a sudden decided to defy one of the referees or even to, to knock him to the ground or something like that, there would have to be consequences, and there would be, right? That, that player might be suspended. He might be banned from the league. He might, he might get, a, get a fine. Something even worse might happen. In other words, someone has to have not just authority over the lives of these guys, but power over them in order for that authority to be real. And I hope you realize this, that by this definition, God has ultimate authority. By this definition, God, in fact, has absolute authority. Psalm 115.3 says, it's before you there, our God is in the heavens, he does what he pleases. Our God is in the heavens, he does what he pleases. No one has authority over God, and there is no authority equal to his, and by the way, that includes Satan. Even though Satan would very much like us to think otherwise, right? Like in the beginning of the book of Job, if you know anything about that chapter, Satan appears before God, and God says, Satan, what have you been up to? I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but Satan says, well, I've just been running around in the world. I've been kind of going here and going there and doing my thing and basically doing whatever I want to do. He's kind of flaunting his freedom. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job, this, this really wonderful, kind, God-fearing man? Isn't he great? And Satan says, well, yeah, because you won't let me touch him. Well, what kind of authority is that if he isn't even allowed to touch Job? Well, obviously, it's not ultimate authority, Right? Satan appears to have authority even in the lives of Christians sometimes. You know why? Because there are times when Satan tells us to do things, and even though we don't have to because he's not our Lord, we do them anyway. Satan also exercises a kind of authority in the lives of those who don't know Christ because they are still living in bondage to their sin, and Satan uses that as a wedge to control them. Satan also holds authority in the systems of this fallen world But please remember this. It's only because God has allowed Satan to have that temporary influence. Satan does not have the ultimate authority in any of these areas, and that's because he does not have the power to back it up. He is helpless to resist the mighty, infinite strength of our God, and his flimsy gates cannot hold back the advance of God's church. He doesn't have the power. Satan deceives people. He blackmails people. He whispers all sorts of lies into people's ears. But he cannot back up his words because only God has ultimate authority and so only God has ultimate power. Only God is all-powerful. Here's where we have to be kind of careful with our words, by the way, and with our definitions because you, you might have noticed I define God's kingdom not in terms of God's authority but in terms of God's rule because although God's authority is in fact absolute, His rule is not, at least not yet. And and what I mean by that is that God has not yet actively exercised his rule everywhere that he has this authority. A few months after Ali was cured of his cancer and came to Christ, the authorities raided the shop where the Christians had been meeting. They broke up the fellowship and arrested six of the leaders, and these men are still in jail. They're separated from their wives and their kids. God's kingdom 
God's active rule does not yet encompass all of this world. However, it has now established an embattled outpost over in a formerly unreached area of northwest China, which is now not as spiritually dark as it used to be. That's exciting. And one day God's kingdom will be established in all of this world and God will exert his authority once and for all and he will do away with Satan and his followers completely and forever. But I want to just look now at a couple of these miracles. First, let's, let's read about the centurion's servant, the one that begins in, in verse 5 of chapter 8. It says, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, which was his adopted hometown, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I'm going to kind of skip over this language about the sons of the kingdom being thrown into darkness at this point, just for our purposes today. We need to come back to that idea. But suffice it to say for now that Jesus is talking about basically the Old Testament expression of God's kingdom, which was primarily through the physical nation of Israel. And that's what he's talking about there. We'll get to that. But I want to talk more about the, about the healing and the miracle at this point. You probably noticed this man's very straightforward description of authority, right? We probably didn't need that, that football illustration because this centurion gets it right. He knows exactly. He could have just said, he defined it for us. He said, I say go, and this one goes. I say come, and this one comes. This man's faith is very simple, and that's why it's so powerful. He thinks, well, you know what? If Jesus indeed has the authority to command a miraculous healing for his servant, then the circumstances around it really don't matter. In fact, even location doesn't matter because absolute authority is absolute authority. So Jesus, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Amazing. Awesome faith. Let me ask you something. Are people still healed today miraculously in the name of Jesus? Okay. Yes, Jesus still has all that authority, including authority over sickness, injury, and affliction. And like some of you, probably like most of you, I can say personally that I have on occasion, I have seen cancer unexpectedly go into remission. I have seen some really scary diagnoses get reversed by doctors after the church has prayed. I've even heard of a couple of doctors that have been openly bewildered about some of these things that have happened. But let me say this too. I haven't seen a ton of it. I don't see it every day here. And, and this is kind of a follow-up question, and this is a big one for a lot of us, and some of you have asked me this, ask each other this. Why don't we see divine healing and miracles like that in America as much and as often as they do in places like Africa or maybe even in the far west corner of China? There are places in this world where miracles are a little bit more expected, and people actually talk about them in a little more matter-of-fact ways. Oh, God heals? Well, yeah. Well, what, what did you expect? Whereas for us, Maybe they're a bigger deal because they're a lot more uncommon. Well, why is that? 
Now, I can't tell you the flat-out straight answer to that one, in, you know, completely, if I, but there are, are some ideas that I have, okay, that, that I believe are anchored in Scripture, and they have to do with these healings that we're reading about here. The first one, perhaps, is hinted at in verse 8. Now, Jesus ends up, of course, commending this man for his great faith, and although faith is not directly tied to all the miracles in this section, almost every miracle here, it mentions the person's faith, and that happens a lot in the Gospels. And what I notice, what I notice about the kind of faith that seems to bring these miracles on is that it's pretty much always born of desperation. You know, Lord, my servant is paralyzed. He can't move. And he's suffering desperately at home. This man has desperation in his voice. He knows that Jesus is only hope. He can't think of anything else yet. There's, there's nothing left he can try except to appeal for a miracle from this, this Jewish teacher. Jesus is his only hope. It reminds me a little bit of another man who saw Jesus heal at a distance one time. Over in John chapter 4, there was a local official, and he came to Jesus, and he begged him to come to his house and heal his son who was dying. And Jesus said, it's kind of interestingly, Jesus said, you know, if you people don't see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. But the man did not give up. He just looked Jesus in the eye and he said, sir, please come or my son will die. Jesus healed the boy at that moment. I don't know how often we today in the modern West really get to that level of desperation. It's not that we don't care. It's not that we're not upset. It's not that we're not concerned. But in the age of medical miracles, that's what we call them, right? We have so many other avenues open to us for treatment. So what we tend to do very often, maybe, is kind of run to the doctor first and to God second. Or if we do go to God, it's with the understanding that if God won't or can't do anything about this, then at least we have the doctors to back up God, right? Now, I am not saying you should turn your back on, on modern medical care. Because modern medicine is a miracle in its own right. It's something that God has actually allowed us to have. It comes from the Lord, not from men. It is in itself a testimony to God's goodness and mercy. But listen, doctor or no doctor, medicine or no, doc, or no medicine, we need to know something. God is our healer. God is our healer. It's not the doctor. His is the ultimate authority. His is the ultimate power. And, and I don't know how often we really come to the end of our rope and get to that point where we're really trusting in Jesus at the bottom level and see no hope but in Him. A few years after we moved here, so maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago now, uh, Nathan, our older son, came down one night with kind of a scary fever. And it was scary because it was a high fever, but he had no other symptoms at that time. And growing up in a medical family, I know that a mysterious fever of unknown origin like that can be kind of a scary thing because it can be a sign of any number of, of serious conditions. And um, those of you who know me, and my wife will, will testify to this, know that I am a worrier by nature. I am a doer. If something is wrong, if I can do anything, if something needs to be found out, if something needs to be, I will run around and I will just get active. I will take the child's temperature every 10 minutes. I'll wake him up from a sound sleep to see if it's gone up or down. Okay, that's, that's my personality. That's what I do. I'm sure I'm a pain in the neck at times like that sometimes. The, the, uh, the, the problem in this case, when this happened, or rather I guess it's the blessing looking back on it, was that when this happened with Nathan, I was out of town. So I was stuck by myself in a hotel room that night 
far away from home with no ability to do any of those things. And so in this case, all I could do was pray. And in fact, that's what I did. I got out Psalm 103, and I read it to God over and over. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forget not all his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. In fact, I prayed through that psalm enough that night that I actually memorized it. Nathan's fever went away. And I don't know what it was or how it was healed. Maybe it wasn't a big deal. Maybe it was. I don't know. But I learned a little bit that night about the faith of desperation, even of necessity. Not just the theoretical, maybe God can do something, but in order for something to happen, God has to do it because we are helpless. The way maker has to make a way because there's no other way. So think, pretend. What if there was no doctor? What if there was no EMS? What if there were no antibiotics? What if there was no hospital, no surgeries, no radiation, no chemotherapy? Though we might make use of those things, and we can and should make use of those things, I think. Listen, why should their existence undermine our absolute dependence on Jesus, whose authority has the final word over any doctor or any disease. I wonder if we got that straight, if we got the order right in our hearts, whether we might see a few more amazing things happening in our midst. But let me suggest to you one other, one other possibility as to why we may not see so much miraculous healing where we are, as may happen in other times and places. And I'm going to kind of go about this one, get the long way around. But, but first let me read one, or, one more of these miracles. Chapter 9. Chapter 9, starting in verse Two. This is the other paralyzed guy. It says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and yet they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Crowds apparently recognize this, at this point that something divine is going on here, but they're not yet ready to say that Jesus is more than a man. Matthew doesn't mention it, but we learn from Mark and Luke that this is, this is the guy who was lowered through the roof. They cut a hole in the roof and lowered him through on his bed in order that he could be in front of Jesus. So obviously that faith that is born of desperation is happening here too. These guys are desperate or they wouldn't pull something like that. But this time Jesus says something very unexpected. I mean, when this guy was dropped in front of Jesus, I'm sure there are many things you would have thought Jesus might said at that point, but this was not one of them. He looks at the guy and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. I'll bet you could have heard a pin drop. It got Jesus charged with blasphemy because the scribes are saying, hey, only God can forgive sin. But it also leads to a very important question about authority. Jesus says, look, which is harder to say to somebody who's paralyzed? Is it harder to say your sins are forgiven or is it harder to say get up and walk? Now, that's a loaded question, right? 
Because on the surface, it's easier to say, hey, your sins are forgiven, because that statement calls for no visible proof. I mean, you can, nobody can say definitively whether it happened or not. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. There's no visible sign. Whereas if you say, get up and walk, you're putting a lot more on the line, really, aren't you? Because that claim to authority has to be verified by what happening? Guy's got to get up and walk, and people have, people have to see it. So that's certainly the riskier thing to say. And yet everybody knows, everybody in that room knows that when Jesus shockingly says, your sins are forgiven, that he has raised the stakes. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, let's cut to the chase. I didn't come into this world just to, just to rescue Israel from the Romans. I didn't come into this world just to be a good teacher and to be a good Bible expositor. I, I didn't even come into this world just to heal a few diseases and cast out a few demons. I came here to reach down into the center of this contaminated earth and grab Satan by the throat and yank him and his counterfeit kingdom out by the roots. That's why I came here. And that means I have to deal with the root problem, which is sin. Because the only reason anybody ever gets sick is because sin has broken this world. That's also the only reason that we have evil governments. It's the only reason that we have poverty or injustice or every other social problem that you can think of because of sin. The root is the same, and it's been with us since Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus didn't come here just to treat the symptoms. He came here to cure this thing once and for all because in the long run, it does no good if you heal somebody's body if their soul remains untreated. And Jesus proved that he could in fact do the harder thing, forgive sin, by in effect saying the harder thing, get up and walk. And he showed that he has the authority to do both and the infinite power of a holy God to back up his every word. But you might say, okay, your sins are forgiven. And probably the same thing that these people were thinking at that moment. On what basis can Jesus forgive sin? How can he really forgive sin? How is that even possible? Can our sins be forgiven? That's a huge question. Think about it. We all need to know the answer to this one. Because it affects all of us. Can our greed, our selfishness, our lust, our gossip, our pride, our laziness, our betrayals of our friends, our abusive language, our ruthlessness and lack of compassion, our inaction in the face of suffering, our cowardice when God calls us to speak up, can that really be erased? Can that really be, be cleansed? Can it really be taken away along with all the shame and guilt feelings that, that go with it? In the midst of this flurry of healing, Matthew actually inserts one verse that's kind of an explanation for us. It's actually in chapter 8, and it's verse 17. And he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. You may have some other translations there, but you'll see the idea. Now, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is the chapter that Matthew is quoting here. And that chapter, we've seen it a couple times before in recent weeks, it's about the cross. It's a prophecy 700 years before of Jesus' death on the cross. It's the same passage that says, all we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was bruised for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. So can we be forgiven? Yes. Yes. What Jesus has accomplished on the cross enables us to be forgiven. But here's a question. 
So is Matthew just kind of jerking this verse out of context from Isaiah, or is he trying to tell us something by tying Jesus' healing ministry to a passage that's all about his sacrificial death? I think Matthew is on to something here. I think he's trying to tell us something. Namely this, that when we come to Jesus for physical healing, and we can today, that we come to the same place we came to for forgiveness, which is the cross of Calvary. It's the place where Jesus broke the power of sin and death, and he broke the power of death's close relative, sickness, at the same time. This is an emphasis, by the way, on the Christian and Missionary Alliance, for those of you who may be relatively new and you're wondering what we're all about. This is part of it. Why we don't necessarily believe that Jesus suffered all of our illnesses the same way that he suffered for our sins, we do believe and we teach, as Matthew strongly suggests here, that in some mysterious way, Jesus took our illnesses with him to the cross. Our infections, our chronic conditions, our cancers, our coronavirus, our disabilities, our headaches, our mental illness, our emotional anguish, all those things have been defeated. Jesus can and does heal those things in this life. And even at times when he doesn't do it immediately, we know that he certainly will. And in the meantime, these enemies cannot finally defeat us, even as they await their final destruction. Matthew 9 tells us that the guy who was healed rose and went home. It's kind of funny to think about. This guy gets up and just walks home in front of everybody. He's like, where's he going? He's going home. But obviously he was a local, which means that from that day forward, every time the people of Capernaum saw this young dude walking down the street on his formerly paralyzed legs, they heard a message ringing out loud and clear, which is this. Jesus of Nazareth has the authority to forgive sin. And I don't believe it's any coincidence, and here we're starting to get to maybe my other answer to our question here, that the places in this world where you are most likely to see miraculous healing and deliverance are the places where the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel announcing freedom from sin, is being actively and powerfully proclaimed in unreached and even hostile places. That in the places where the kingdom of God is colliding most obviously and most violently with the counterfeit kingdom of Satan, places like, yes, the Uyghur village in northwest China, that's where you see more Ali's being suddenly healed of cancer and you see more doctors freaking out because they have no answers for what they're seeing. On the other hand, in places where the church is relatively comfortable and secure, farther away from the bleeding edge of evangelism, we are perhaps less likely to see a lot of miraculous activity because maybe... You don't need to shine a whole lot of flashlights if you never go into any dark places. At the beginning of Matthew 10, Jesus actually shares with his disciples the authority that he has over demonic powers and over sickness. He even tells them to raise the dead. And he sends them out into the towns of Israel where his name is not yet well known. So there they go headed out into the darkness. Where's the darkness in your community, in your life, in your circle of friends, in your workplace, in your school? Where's the darkness? Where are the places where Jesus is not known? Or if he is known, he's known in the wrong way. Will you walk into the darkness? Will you have that same message that the disciples had? Jesus said, go preach the kingdom of God has drawn near. You can be a new person. There's a new power. 
There's a new way of doing things. You can reorient your life. As you and I leave this place and we go out into the world this week, we who know Christ are carrying the kingdom of God with us. And that means we are carrying the authority of Christ with us. We are authorized, authorized to pray for people in need of deliverance and healing in Jesus' name and to see them healed and delivered. And we are also authorized and commanded to announce to people that their sins can be forgiven if they trust in Christ. But first we have to trust in, our, trust in him ourselves, right, so we can faithfully represent him in our world even as we reach out into the dark places and then we trust him for the results. Now, let me give you just one other challenge as we close and go to the Lord's table this morning. If you see this, if you see God work in your life, if you see God do some definite or even miraculous thing in your life or in the life of someone that you're reaching out to, here's the challenge. Please tell us. Please share it. Tell your church family. Tell your Sunday school class. Tell your small group. I will gladly hand you a microphone. And you can tell this whole church assembly. I will do that this morning if you come up and interrupt me during communion, okay? I will. Try me. But you can also jumpstart things by contacting me in any way at any time you like, and I'll let you talk. You know, if God has been at work, let us know. Because hearing about these things builds up our faith and it emboldens us more to pray for the, for the kingdom of God to advance through us. We have to share these things with each other. As it says in Psalm 9-1, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of the marvelous things that you've done. Will you do that? Will we do that? We have no idea what God can do through us if we really take his good news into the dark places of Davidson County. Let's pray.